Brilliant. Excellent. Just going to make a little bit of room here. Sorry, I am absolutely a nightmare for the cameraman. I'm, I like to stride around. I try and stay still, but I can't. <sighs> Whoa. Thanks, chaps. What a time of worship. Was that just me or was that amazing? Absolutely awesome. Just, wow, particularly that song about the train and just God arresting that woman and turning her life around. Thanks, sister, wherever you are, for having the, the, uh, the guts to get up here and do that. It was just awesome. Well, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. Who's been having a good weekend? Yay! Well, God is so good. We had a little bit of a, a concern earlier in the day. Apparently, Julian Adams hadn't got his train tickets, and so he was stranded in Teesside. But we've heard the latest is that he's hurtling here as we speak. So, can we have a woo? A woo? He should be here bright and early for tomorrow morning to, uh, to preach and to prophesy and do his thing. So it should be fantastic. Well, I remember clear as a bell... I've been a Christian 11 years now. I remember, I remember when I first became a Christian, one of the, the scriptures that most kind of was just illuminated by God when I saw it for the first time was Galatians chapter 5. You know the uh, very famous verse, you can join with me. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And I remember reading that, and uh, it's one of those kind of classics, isn't it? It's just one of those classics that everyone knows, everyone loves. And I think basically it's saying this incredible truth, that Jesus Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, in its totality, is there to bring us, very normal, broken people, into a place of incredible freedom. I think this world, above everything else, is actually looking for freedom. There's the theory, there's the theology, there's the truth that Christ's life, death and resurrection has attained for us freedom. But I don't know whether it's just me, I have a suspicion it's probably not. Although that's the theory, that's the truth, that's the theology. When I then look at my actual life on a Monday morning or on a Tuesday morning or whatever, more often than not when I look at my life, my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes, I just wonder whether actually I am living in as much freedom as Christ has bought for me. There's just this nagging little thought at the back of my brain. Maybe there's yet more. Maybe there's more freedom that Christ wants me to enjoy. There's the theology, there's the truth. Join with me. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then there's my life and there's the reality. Enjoying something of that freedom but at the back of my mind thinking, I just wonder whether actually God wants to break me into a place of greater freedom. And in fact, when we've been, as we've been thinking the last 24 hours about church plants, we've been thinking about this region. We've been thinking about seeing the churches that we're in part of established and strengthened. I think all of this depends on us individually and corporately enter entering into an ever more greater understanding and reality of our freedom. In fact, if we're going to have marriages that are going to last for 5, 10, 15, 30, 50 years plus, I believe understanding and obtaining the true freedom that Christ wants for us isn't a small issue, it's a massive issue. 
In fact, I believe if we're going to see the, the workplaces that you guys and us, we are positioned in for the sake and glory of Jesus Christ, I believe us entering into the greater freedom that God has for us is absolutely crucial. So I hope you, you sense my heart here that I believe this is quite a big issue. This is a big deal. And so I can almost hear you saying in your hearts, well, Tom, we're convinced. We see the, we see the truth in Scripture. And then we kind of resonate with your reality that sometimes in our own lives, perhaps there's actually not as much freedom as we would want. So what, pray tell, is the solution, I hear you say. How do we enter into that freedom that God has got for us? Is it going to be a hugely complicated thing? Is it going to be something that only a, a few special people obtain? Is it going to be something that is going to take my whole life to get hold of? Well, friends, I've got some really good news for us tonight. I believe when you boil it down and you make it as simple as you possibly can, there is one main obstacle that Scripture gives us that holds us back from entering into freedom. One word, five letters. If, if my PowerPoint has come up, you might be able to guess what it is. It's the second word. Should we say it together? One, two, three. Idols. We just turn to the person next to us and go, Idols. Idols. It's a scary word, isn't it? Idols. Everyone's been saying to me last day, Hey, Tom, what are you preaching on? I'm like, Idols. And they're like, Okay, I might, I might be busy on Saturday night. You know, I might be doing something else. But when you look at Scripture... You see, when I see the word idols, a lot of us can think, idols? You're saying that's the solution to us entering into the freedom that God wants for us. It's understanding idols and overcoming idols. Come on, idols, those kind of big golden calf things that, you know, were a bit of a a, a problem 3,000 years ago. Well, guys, bear with me, because tonight I I want us to see that actually idols are far more subtle, far more hidden, and far more potentially destructive than a big golden calf. We're going to go tonight on a seek and destroy mission. I want us tonight to seek out, by the Holy Spirit and by His Word, the idols that are hidden and secret in our lives, and then I want us to destroy them. Join with me in going, stamp your foot. We're going to destroy them. Thank you. There's not a lot of noise, is there? It's, it's around. Pathetic. Note to self, don't do that again. We're going to destroy them. We're going to destroy them tonight. We're going to expose them. There's going to be some pain tonight, okay? But pain is not a bad thing, always. When God brings pain, when his word brings pain, then actually it's because God wants to do something to change us. And I just want to say right up at the beginning tonight, okay, this is one of those words that is not just some abstract little, you know, sermon that I got out of a a book or something. This is living, breathing in my life, okay? And as we look at some of the material, I want you to remember that I am right here with you through this, allowing God to show things in my life that aren't great, that aren't nice, but actually, if we have the courage to look at them, actually, and the courage to destroy them by the power of the Spirit, we will become a people of enormous freedom. So, we are going to look tonight at perhaps the great story of freedom that we, th- we find in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 1, the story of God freeing his people who were in captivity into a place of glorious freedom. But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, we want to thank you that you want to change us. God, we, we just say, Lord, thank you that you prune us because you love us. Lord, we recognize fruit doesn't come unless we're pruned. And so, Lord, tonight we just give you permission, God, to come by your spirit, to encourage, to highlight, to snip bits which need snipping, 
to change us, Lord, so that we would become more like your Son and so we would see the entirety that you have for us realized. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, three points tonight. Three points is all you know, good sermons have. Number one, the truth about our freedom. Say the truth about our freedom. The truth about our freedom. Number two, the lie about our idols. Say with me, the lie about our idols. The lie about our idols. And number three, the solution for our future. Say with me, the solution for our future. So the truth, the lie, and the solution. Okay, so first of all, the truth about our freedom. Now, the way the Bible works is this, is that the way it helps us to understand what it is to be a Christian in the present is by calling us to get captivated with God's great story from the past. I'll say that again. The way that God helps us to understand our freedom, our position in Christ, our, our being Christians, is actually to get enthralled with his big picture of freedom in the past. And so tonight, we're going to read about a people who are going to start off in slavery. Can I have a boo? Boo. But they're going to be brought into a place of glorious freedom. Yay! Hallelujah. And as we do that, God's going to be helping us to understand the truth about our freedom here in a field in standing menace in the 21st century. Believe it or not, it's the most relevant story that we can spend time looking at. So the context before we read is this. The people of God, Israel, are in a place called Egypt. They started off there hundreds of years earlier and things were okay. But in the last few years, a new ruler has come into town, a new pharaoh, and he ain't good. Okay, He's a bad, bad guy. And so the situation at the moment is that things are pretty grim. And so we get familiar with this story. If we're Christians, we've heard this story before. But the reality is that I want us to start actually by feeling something of the oppression and the captivity that the people of God were in. At this moment, the people of God were probably, as Terry mentioned earlier on, there's probably about two million of them. And they were enslaved to the ruler of Egypt. And Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And Pharaoh was worshipped as a god himself. And he brutally mistreated, brutally mistreated the people of Israel that were in, uh, under his rule. Let's read from verse 8 in chapter 1. That's the context. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, now look at this, don't miss this, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Doesn't sound very nice. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt, this is just to, to top it all, said that the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. 
So we start off tonight with a really awful situation. Now, one of the awful things as a Christian is when the Bible, when you read a story, you're familiar with it and it doesn't really impact you. But I believe God wants us to start tonight almost to, to, to smell the smells of life in those days, to sense what it would have been like to be an Israelite in the time that this is written in Egypt, in captivity. It was horrific. Notice here, this verse here, in verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So they're there to get the job done. They're the taskmasters. But it's not just to get the job done. They're also there to make their life hell. If anyone here has got a big brother or a big sister, you know what it's like to have a taskmaster in your life. I had two. They are there not just to get things done, but basically just to make sure that your life is very, very difficult. But in addition to this, I want us to notice the big point here. Is that at this moment, the Israelites had no freedom. They had no freedom. You see, we live in a nation where we have total freedom. Probably very few of us have ever been in a situation where we didn't have total freedom. I think the nearest to it was when I, my, in my brain as a 16-year-old teenager, was trying to think, what should I do with my life? What should I become? And believe it or not, I actually thought about joining the army. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I won't say anything. I thought about joining the army for about one second. And one of the things I realized was that the thing that put me off it above everything was the fact that my freedom, once I, you know, I signed and went in, would be completely constricted. I'd have to do what my commander said. And for me, the idea of my freedom being constricted completely freaked me out. The idea, there's something in us as humans, I think, that, that being constricted, you know, going to prison, I haven't been to prison, but the idea of serving time in a place where you have no control over your freedom must be absolutely awful. And this is the kind of environment that these two million Israelites are in. They are in a place of serious captivity. It's an awful situation they are in. But what we read, which is so amazing, is that in that situation, in verse 23 of chapter 2, if you turn over your page, we see in that bleak, dark situation of captivity, God breaks in. We see a shaft of light, a glimmer of hope come in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. That's been a theme, isn't it, in the last day? With Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that phrase, and God knew. God understood and felt and was sensitized to the captivity of the people of Israel. And so what we see in the coming chapters after that is that the great rescue plan of God begins. And it ain't complicated. He takes a normal guy called Moses and he says to him, Hi, Mr. Normal Guy Moses. I'm going to use you to break your people out of jail. I'm going to use you to break your people out of this horrendous captivity and enslavement they're in into a place of incredible freedom. And we know the story. Moses is like, what, me? No, no, you've got the wrong guy. And so God in his grace couples him with Aaron who can, who can communicate better than him. And so what we see in chapters 7 to 11 is this incredible, I mean, we just we get so familiar with this incredible dialogue between this shy guy and the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. You know, we see again and again little um, Moses going up to the big, palace 
Hello? Pharaoh? Can I come in? I've got a message from God. Oh yeah, what's that? Uh, well, basically, uh, <clears throat> what, is, what, is, what God wants me to say to you is this, is you need to let the people go. And if you don't let them go, God's going to judge you. Response from Pharaoh, on your bike, buddy. I'm not listening to you, Mr. Shyman. And so what we see is this incredible sort of growing God ratcheting up the series of warnings. So first of all, God says through Moses, okay, tell him that if he doesn't let the people go, he's going to turn the river Nile from water into blood. Okay, it's a kind of warning shot across the bow. And obviously, Pharaoh, being the arrogant man that he is, he ignores Pharaoh, uh, Moses. rather. And what do we see? The blood turns from water into blood. We then see Pharaoh, uh, Moses, sent for a second time. Uh, Moses, uh, Pharaoh, rather, sorry to bother you. I- I've come to say that, again, if you don't let the people of God go, this time, God's going to send loads of frogs. Uh, and that is, I don't know if it's just me, but... That's a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? It's like, I mean, imagine being Moses. You know, your big, your big warning to Pharaoh is God's going to send loads of frogs. You know, it's like, ooh, frogs. But anyway, God does. You know, God is sovereign. And he sends loads of frogs. And those little blighters, they get everywhere, I'm sure. And it's a bit of a nightmare. But God's still kind of warming up, isn't he? And then we see, you know, once again, I'm coming back again. God's here again. Gnats are going to come this time. Flies. Fifth time, it gets a bit more serious. Egyptian livestock. They're killed because Pharaoh, again, ignores God's warning. So don't forget what's happening here. God's passion is to free his people. And the man standing in the way, that Pharaoh, is not budging. And so God just cranks it up. I'm going to send boils. I'm going to send hail. I'm going to send locusts. I'm going to send darkness. And then tenthly and finally, the most serious, Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go... Every single one of your firstborns in this land, Egyptian firstborns, will be killed. And Pharaoh, in his incredible arrogance, ignores the warning from God. And so we see at this critical moment, on the night just before it's about to happen, in chapter 12, God whispers the secret of freedom to his people. In chapter 12, verse 21, to avoid this judgment upon the firstborn. And then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two, two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Verse 29. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there's not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. And go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and gone and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. 
For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewellery and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is an incredible moment. An incredible moment in the people of Israel's history. After all this time in captivity, in the most, it's like something out of Hollywood, isn't it? This really happened. God does the biggest jailbreak the world has ever seen and breaks the people of God out of captivity. And I love it. They go from slaves to heirs in an instant. They don't just go from slaves to free, but slaves who are free, but with loads of jewellery and gold and stuff. And it's God's just sense of humour. And it's amazing because you see, the, the Egyptians who have been ripping off the people of God for all these years, and taking the stuff off them that they deserved, suddenly God gives the people of God permission to go and plunder it right back again. This is the picture that God gives us. And the incredible thing is, it, obviously God is just in a super good mood. I mean, he's always in a good mood. But God, if you read on, he just, he just goes for it. The people of God are freed. They can't believe it. it's like something out of the great escape. They're just, woohoo, we're out. They're off, going for it, free at last. And what we see is like God, you know, he could have sent down like a, you know, a heavenly sat-nav or, you know, like a big map or something to sort of show them the way. But, oh, no, God wants to do things in style. And so God appears as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. How cool is that? I mean, can you imagine being like the people of God? You'd be like, you know, walking along following the cloud of fire or, the, you know, the pillar of fire. And you see some poor nomad who's like watching you. would be like, all right, mate, I'm with him. Pretty cool, eh? This is our God. He's a big pillar of fire. It's amazing. Absolutely incredible. And then, you know, and then it's like, quick, you know, and then, you know, as with all Hollywood stories, quick, he's coming. You know, you think the baddie's dead, but he's coming with all his armies. And quick, God opens up the Red Sea, of course, as you do, and he goes through it. And then he closes it again, all, all the Egyptians. Yay! Down they go. It's amazing. God is just absolutely demonstrating his passion to free his people. And so we see, and I love this, I can't resist but reading this. In chapter 15, Moses, remember shy guy? Anyone here ever feel they're a bit shy? Okay? But in the hand, yeah, a few of us, many of us. The shy guy, with everything that's going on, he can't resist it. He just goes for it. He like bursts into like a, a Moses rap or something. Chapter 15, verse 11. I imagine he's said this with a big Pentecostal kind of voice. He says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have, say with me the next word, redeemed. Say the word again, redeemed. Now you see, if, if you're a new Christian, you, you might have vaguely heard the word redemption before, redeemed. It's one of those words that, if you're anything like me, doesn't really mean anything. You know, there's not a lot of times you normally use it in 21st century East Kent. You know, redeemed. But actually, the word redemption, if you want to understand what it means, it means to be set free. You see, when you look at the New Testament, it's just bursting with, with, with references to redemption. Redemption means to be liberated. It means to be set free. It means to be taken out of captivity and placed into incredible, abundant freedom. That is what redemption is. It's the most amazingly powerful thing. And this is the amazing news. Is that at this moment, in this great story, the people of God are free. 
But I want to say, friends, if you are a Christian here tonight, do you know what? You are free as well. You can, you can say hallelujah or something if you want. Hallelujah. You are redeemed. We are redeemed. We, are, we have been in captivity and we have been set free. You see, Israel were hopeless and helpless, totally vulnerable under the rule of an enemy ruler, Pharaoh. They were totally vulnerable and dependent upon a third party to come and rescue them. And do you know what? Just like me and you, before we knew Jesus, we were helpless and hopeless under an enemy ruler called Satan. And we, like the people of Israel, were totally dependent and needing a third party rescuer to come and rescue us. And we know his name. What's his name? One, two, three. Jesus. He's our redeemer. He's the one who just like he set these people free, he set us free. And that's why, like in Romans 3, 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Colossians 1, 13, it can't be improved upon in this context. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the domain of his beloved son in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. And when you think about what it cost our Jesus to redeem us, this thing just goes from amazing to sublime. You see, it was the blood of a lamb, wasn't it? We read it earlier. The blood of a lamb that was smeared on the doorpost so that the people of God would avoid judgment and be ushered into freedom. But it was the blood of our precious Jesus Christ that was smeared at Calvary that meant you and me could avoid judgment and be ushered into incredible freedom. You see, and this is why John, when he saw Jesus Christ, John loaded with these pictures, this big story of redemption from slavery into freedom. When he sees Jesus, what are his very first words? In John 1.29, I love it. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's why in Revelation 5, when John, caught up in the Spirit, catches a glimpse of heaven itself, what's happening up there? What's happening up there right now? We know. Thousands upon millions upon upon millions of angel angelic beings are crying one thing. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. He is our Passover Lamb. He is our Redeemer. And so I want us, on this first point, if nothing else, just to have this incredibly clear contrast in our minds. The awfulness of the slavery that the people of God were in. A awful situation under captivity with a wicked ruler, Pharaoh, who was absolutely about their oppression and their bondage. And being broken out into a place of glorious spaciousness and freedom. With an amazing new leader called God. Who appears as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And he makes water come out of rocks and, and you know, and parts red seas. I mean, the contrast is immense between slavery and phenomenal freedom. I'm quite excited about this. You may have gathered. I just, it's quite powerful, I find. 
So you might say, well, Tom, that's great. I get it. I, I can see freedom. Uh, sorry, no, slavery. Whoops. Into freedom. Praise God. Surely we can, you know, go off and get a burger now. I get it. Wonderful. You've been good, nice and short. Although this is true, you see, although this is true, the reality is this, although our redemption, if you're a Christian here today, I, I believe with all my heart, it can never be reversed. I believe it is one-way traffic. Hallelujah. Come hallelujah. One-way street. I believe God redeems us and it's sealed. We're chosen before the foundations of the earth. But I believe that there is a lie the Bible tells us about, that it warns us about, that if we allow to control and affect us, it can just affect our enjoyment of that freedom that has been secured and prevent us becoming all that God wants us to be. So I just for a moment want us to look secondly, therefore, not just at the truth, but at the lie about our idols. And there's a couple of things I want to say about idols. Number one, the, tr- the lie about our idols is that it's silly. Okay? Say silly. It's silly. But secondly, say, but they're subtle. Say they're subtle. Well done. So the lie about idols is that, first of all, that they're silly. And then secondly, but they are subtle. Now, what on earth am I talking about? Picture the scene. You're part of the people of God. Okay? There's two million of you. You've just gone through the incredible thing I've described. Okay? Just the amazing, amazing freedom that God has given you. You're going to be in quite a good mood, I think. Things are going to be fairly optimistic. You know, you're going to be probably cranking up the stereo. Let's get this party started. You know, it's just going to be party time. You're free. You've been in horrible captivity and you're free. Cranking up the stereo, probably a stereo about this size. You know, we're on like point one at the moment. It's up on ten, okay? It's like people who never normally dance, they're just dancing. The people of God are going for it. They're having a party, you know, cracking open the San Miguel and the Bacardis or whatever you drink. You know, it's just brilliant. God's with us. We're free. This is amazing. Moses is rapping. This is just great. And in that situation, would you believe it? I don't know what her sign she just did, but would you believe it? In that situation of party and celebration... Who appears over the hill? None other than Pharaoh. Pharaoh somehow has survived the Red Sea incident. All of his henchmen are dead. All of his bodyguards are dead. They're all being drowned in the sea. But somehow he has survived. And over the brow of the hill comes Pharaoh. But Pharaoh now, you see, is rather more of a prophetic, pathetic rather, pathetic looking figure of a man. His headdress that he normally wears has been washed away in the water and he's you know, he's looking rather pathetic and bedraggled. You know, he normally wears built-up shoes underneath all of his big robes to make him look taller, and they've been washed away in the water as well. So over the hill comes this pathetic-looking man. His robes are all muddy and bedraggled and pathetic. And here he comes, over to two million freed people who are enjoying the presence of the living God who has freed them. And over he comes, and bold as brass, he pipes up, pipes up, Excuse me. Actually, what's going down on here? Turn the music down. What are you guys doing? Where have you? Get back to captivity right now. I, I'm telling you. I won't tell you again. Come on. Chop, chop. One. Two. Two and a half. Come on, everybody. Now. Go. Now, as ridiculous and silly as that picture is, I mean, it is just crazy, isn't it? 
We would not for a moment, would we, if that was the situation, give Pharaoh even like, a, we'd just be like, get lost. What? In fact, someone shout out, what sort of things might we say as that pathetic man, <laughs> as that pathetic man comes over the hill, what might we say? Shout back at him. On your bike! Loser! <laughs> you and whose army, buddy? You better start running, or else heads are going to roll. That kind of thing. It's crazy, isn't it? It's silly. In fact, say to the person next to you, that's silly. It's silly. But you know what? We do that every single Every day that we allow an idol to have any power or influence over us, what we are actually doing is allowing a powerless thing from the past that has no authority over us anymore to allow and to lead us back into captivity. Every single day that we allow any idol to have any power or influence over us, we are actually doing exactly do you get the picture? We are actually going, okay, Pharaoh, I'll follow you back to captivity and giving him authority he doesn't have. Now, you might be saying, well, uh, Tom, uh, my friend, actually, as far as I'm aware, I don't think I've recently been allowing any bedraggled Pharaohs to lead me back into captivity. Thank you very much. I'm just trying to think, and I don't think I have. Well, this is where, you see, my second point is so important. It's because I think most of us as Christians, we know that when we talk about idols, we're not talking about golden calves, literally. I mean, anyone here struggle not to worship golden calves? No, exactly. A hand went up at the back. There'll be ministry later. Don't worry, Dan. That's fine. Most of us don't struggle to not worship golden calves. And if we talk as Christians, if I say, well, what idols are there? We'd probably say things like, oh, I don't know, you know, big houses or, you know, sex or flat screen tellies or flashy cars or something. And of course those things can can become idols. But my second point is this, is that for most of us, actually, the issue of idols is so much more subtle. The issue of us allowing pharaohs to have control and domination over us is so much more subtle than we can ever imagine. Because you see, an idol is actually anything that goes from being a good thing, a good thing in its own right, to becoming the main thing in our lives. A good thing becoming the main thing. Richard Keiss, an Englishman uh, who's, a, a, an American, uh, who's based in America now, made this point. He says, an idol can be a physical object, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure. A hero, in fact, anything that can be a substitute for God. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that in itself is perfectly good. But the crucial warning is this. As soon as our loyalty to anything that leads us to disobey God, we are in danger of making it an idol. It promises freedom, but actually brings captivity. It promises freedom, but brings captivity. And therefore, because so often idols actually come from something that is actually in and of itself good, they are often subtle and they often hide. They often hide and we don't actually even realize that they're there. 
So the million dollar question that I can hear in your hearts is saying, okay, feeling a bit creeped out now, Tom. So how do I know what the idols are in my life? Just ask yourself some of the following questions. What do you worry about the most? What do you worry about more than anything? When things go wrong, what do you rely on most to cope? What's, what's that thing that that thing you have to do when the pressure's on? What do you care about most? Because often idols follow our deepest affections. What are your release valves? Now, release valves in and of themselves are good, but when it goes beyond a healthy release valve to the thing you have to do, what do I have to do to feel better? Where does my mind go when I am free? What do I daydream about? What am I most proud of achieving in my life? And what do I want to be known for? You know, what do you want on your gravestone? And what do I lead with in conversations with people? What do I want them to know about me? That's Tom Shaw, pretty quick. You see, an idol, as my Lord Jones says, is anything that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. And Darren Patrick from America says, we will ultimately look at God or success, romance, fame, status, popularity, or even a hobby to make us feel significant or secure. So right now, probably, if you're anything like me, you're, you've got one or two or more things that maybe the Holy Spirit just illuminated. Things in your life that when I asked those questions, you thought, yeah, actually, Tom, that's, that's, that's maybe something that I can see in my life. But Richard Kite, I think wisely, he says, actually, when you boil it down, when you really make it as simple as possible, there are four main idols that each of us potentially can allow as pharaohs to have authority over us and lead us back into captivity. Four main ones. We're going to briefly look at them. Comfort, control, power, and approval. Comfort, control, power, and approval. And what you'll probably find as we look at these briefly is that maybe one of them particularly may jump out and think, whoa, that's, that's the main one. Or if you're anything like me, you'll look at them and go, yeah, pretty much all of them. And the way I want to do this is... is, is as hopefully all good leaders, I want to lead by example. So we're going to look at this, not just in an abstract way. We look at these next four potential idols, actually through the lens of Tom Shaw. We'll look at them, as it were, in my own life. Because the reality is I know at times I struggle with all of these. And at different times in my life, one has particularly been a big one, and then other times another one has. So uh, there we go. I'm just going to be nice and vulnerable with you. I hope you're okay with that. Okay. So first of all, comfort idol. Tom, have we got a picture? There should be a picture that comes up. There we go. Now, this was a photo taken a little while ago. Can you see it? Is it clear? What do you mean that's not my body? Who said that? Okay, now, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, I lived in Canada. I like to snowboard. I like to surf a little bit. And in these days, I would have to say that probably the main idol that I would have 
been struggling with more than anything would be a comfort idol. Now you're saying, okay, Tom, what do you mean by a comfort idol? If we could have the next slide up rather quickly, please. That'd be great. Let's get rid of that picture of me. That, no, no, no. Oh, dear. That one. Okay. Core idol. And if we could have the next, press the next button again. Oh, no. It's gone wrong. Oh, dear. Okay, we need a table that has, that says comfort idol on the left-hand side. Hey, okay, slow down. You move too fast. That's great. Brilliant. Okay. So first of all, comfort idol. What am I talking about here? A comfort idol is when we make, rather than Jesus Christ, we make the main thing in our life that we are living for comfort, pleasure, lack of stress, freedom from responsibility, freedom from any type of suffering. Okay? That is basically, in a nutshell, the American dream. Isn't it? If you were to ask most Americans, or in fact many British people, what are you living for in your life? It's, well, I'll work hard so I can retire at 41 and uh, basically have a big house uh, with a nice big pension, play lots of golf, and have a nice time and make my life as pleasurable and comfort, comfortable as possible and redu- you know, reduce any kind of stress or any responsibilities. That's what I'm living for. The price that we're willing to pay if that's, uh, if that's you, is that probably, in the workplace particularly, you may uh, be okay with having slightly reduced productivity. Because to be, to be honest with you, work often can be just like a necessary evil. It's something you have to do. If I'm honest with you, being with a lot of students, please forgive me students if you're here, you may not be in this category, often I find with students, there's a little bit of this as an issue. You know, work is not something that you do for the glory of God, it's just something you have to do. It's like a necessary evil. Because actually what we're really living for is just comfort and pleasure and freedom from stress and anxiety. The biggest fear in your life is, if this is something that you struggle with, is probably stress itself. Demands are things that actually, rather than just being something that we cope with, are things that we will, above everything else, try and avoid. And so as a result, sometimes we tend to not give ourselves fully to situations. We won't necessarily give ourselves fully emotionally into communities and groups because ultimately we're just holding a little bit back because we don't want to fully commit. And as a result of that, others around us at times can feel actually hurt because they can just sense that somehow you're not fully engaging, not fully giving yourself because your idol actually is comfort, freedom from any over-responsibility or any sense of real potential for pain or suffering. And your problem emotion, to be honest with you, is probably just boredom. We get bored a lot. Because actually, this idol, it promises freedom if you make these things what you live for, pleasure, comfort, freedom from suffering, the main thing, you'll be happy. But actually, it brings enslavement. It promises freedom but it brings captivity. And actually, Psalm 16 says, in your presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy. Only in your presence, Lord, not in the presence of nice stuff and a life without any comfort, or rather with loads of comfort and no suffering, only in your presence. We should know that, but often we can allow this subtly to be a pharaoh that we say, okay, yeah, I'll make that the main thing I'm living for. When actually says that, Christ says that's not the place actually to find true joy. It's only in my presence. Second uh, idol that we find highlighted is that of control idol, Tom. Okay, here we go. 
Now, as you can see, there I am, just on my way to work in my nice suit. And control idle, Tom. Control. Basically, this is when, in your life, the thing that you are living for more than anything, it's not rocket science, is control. So you spend, we spend our lives trying to make sure that we are in control of absolutely every aspect of our life. We're the sort of people who have a 2, 5, 10, 25-year plan of where we're going to be in our life at every single moment of our lives. We are actually under the illusion that we are in control of the world. You know, we think we're like Bruce Almighty, you know, where he gets the chance to lead the world. We don't actually realize that God's in control, and we somehow think we're in control. And so we spend our life trying to control absolutely everything. And of course, if this is something that you struggle with, it may well be at times that we can be prone to perfectionism because we're trying to control that thing that we're focusing on. And I can, at times, I can, you know, I have this, this sort of del- delusion about myself that I'm really laid back and that I'm fine with like, delegating things to other people and I don't need to be in control of everything. Oh, apart from when it comes to sermons, you know, and I've got to control every part. Or, or, or whether it's that area that, of course, I particularly know about and I have to micromanage and get very involved with and being annoying to everyone. Or, you know, when it's cooking with, that, with Josie and she's doing the onions that weird way and, of course, I've got to get involved and show her that actually any normal person does them that way. <laughs> when control is the thing that we're living for, actually, the price that we can be willing to pay without realising it is actually a certain level of loneliness. Because, to be honest with you, your, your standards are so high, our standards are so high, that other people just think, well, I've tried to get involved at times and I never did it quite as well. And so people just kind of, see ya, you know. And without realizing it, we can become lonely. Our biggest fear, no big surprise, is uncertainty. The idea of not knowing what's going to happen on a certain day at a certain time freaks us out. We've got to know what we're doing at every situation in our lives. And so our biggest fear is the fear of the unknown. Yeah, that meeting that we know is not a big deal, but actually because we've never done it before, it's this massive big deal because we feel like we can't control it because we've never been in that situation before. And so actually others around us at times can feel condemned because, to be honest with you, when they look at your life, you know, their house isn't quite as tidy and their kids aren't quite as together and their car's not quite as shiny or whatever it might be. And your problem of emotion is worry because we're always worried about trying to control everything. So we get worried when we're not worried. We know there's something wrong. We're not worrying about something. And so we try, we're always worrying about something. Okay, cheery. Okay, thirdly, bear with me, guys. I know it's painful, but it helps. God loves to show us hidden idols. That control idol promises freedom. If I can just be in control... I'll be free. But actually it brings enslavement. Thirdly though, power. Power. So we see power, idle Tom. There we go. Just, I'm just in winning mood, okay? Top dog. If power is your idol, which unfortunately it is for me as well, what it basically means is, is that you've got to win, you've got to have success, and you've got to be known about winning and having success. You've got to always be doing well. You've always got to be on top. You know, you're that guy 
uh, the board game. Where everyone's just having a nice, relaxed evening. It's all just relaxed, you know, a few tacos. And it's all just really having a bit of fun. And you're that guy who suddenly changes the atmosphere. Come on! And a nice, relaxed board game transformed into this hyper-competitive thing. Because there's this, you've got to win. And you're trying to pretend you're not like that. And you really are. And you're like, Ooh, I've got to win. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, no, man, don't understand. And so often, if this is an idol, work, our workplace, can go from being a good thing that God's given us to actually being the arena where we can excel and I can be on top. And so our workplace becomes our God. It's serving the greater God of being in a place of power and influence. We live, to be honest with you, deep down often for our own glory. For our own glory. And we don't even realize it. Everything's built around making our empire strong. That we are king of the castle. The price we're going to pay? Burdened. Responsibility. No one else is going to take it. We'll take it. Our biggest fear is humiliation. Because we're used to winning. Yeah, you're used to doing well. And your absolute fear is actually something might go wrong and then you'll be exposed as being merely human. Others around you can feel used at times. They can feel like, I'm just like a pawn and this guy's kind of master chess player, you know, just to kind of make himself, you know, the, the main thing. And the problem emotion can be anger. Because actually when things go wrong, we find it difficult not just to kind of see the lighter side, but somehow we see it as a reflection on us and it exposes that we're not perfect. Anger can flare up. Cry out of the blue. This, this idol, like the others, promises freedom, but it brings enslavement. We allow it to be the thing that leads us back into captivity. And finally, approval. Approval, idol, Tom. There I am. Yeah. Surf's up, dude. Trying to hang... <laughs> Trying to hang with my cool friends. So approval idol, Tom. Approval idol is when, you've guessed it, people's approval, affirmation, thumbs up, words of encouragement aren't just a nice thing. They are the thing you live for. Knowing people like you is everything to you. Oh, it's much more than knowing God loves you. You wouldn't think that, but actually our attitudes and our actions actually betray the fact that's what we think. And so we spend our life enslaved to this God of needing people's affirmation, needing to know that everyone's okay with what I'm doing, that person wasn't thinking that I'm nasty and weird and whatever. And you spend your life bowing down to this Pharaoh and allowing it to take you back into captivity. It promises freedom, brings complete enslavement. You know, it's that thing of when other people in church get invited to that drinks thing, and you don't. And you don't even really know the person, but you feel on, on the surface of you, you're like, that's fine, it's cool, have a great night. Inside you're like, <laughs> broken. You don't even really know them or like them, but it's just, I wasn't included. They don't like me. That's happened to me many times, I have to say. <laughs> I have an amazing wife. Thank you. No, I'm saying I've been an idiot many times, not people have been nasty. A price we're willing to pay often is less independence. Why? Because actually, before we make any kind of decision, we're making sure everyone agrees. We all agreed on that? Think I'm doing the right thing? Okay, okay, let's do this thing then. Rather than actually going, God said, 
we're going this way. And so actually we can become less independent. Biggest fear, no surprises here, is rejection. Huge. Rejection. The idea of being rejected subtly, obviously, is, is almost too much there. And others can feel around us at times smothered because unconsciously we're constantly needing that information. You know, we can, we can over-explain our actions to try and get him to validate them. Over-explain. And finally, our, I'll be pleased to know our final point here, our, our problem emotion can be cowardice. Actually trying to be honest with people at times in loving correction, being honest about what happened, can at times be just almost impossible. Because what if they react badly? And then they withdraw their approval, and then, my God, you know, my idol comes crashing down. This idol, like all the other idols, it promises freedom. But you know what? It leads us back into captivity. It's an idol. It's a false god. It says, if you feed me, if you put your energies into feeding me and making sure I am fed and what you live for and your passions, your energies are about that, you'll be so happy. You'll be so happy. And it's just a stupid, silly pharaoh that we allow to lead us out of a place of freedom into a place of captivity. So as we finish tonight, I hear you say, gosh, Tom, I feel laid bare. I feel convicted. I know I do. What's the solution? Don't leave us dangling. Don't just leave us in a place of just like, okay, I can see that in my life. What is the solution? Well, I, I want to I say there's, there's two aspects here. And it's great news again. You know, the first aspect of the solution, you simply knowing what those potential idols are in your life is probably the most significant thing in you overcoming them. Just knowing them. That's why tonight's talk was just called Exposing Idols. Because remember, like the Pharaoh picture, they're just in, intrinsically, utterly powerless. We only, they only have any power when we give them power. So often when you read in the, old, in the prophets, like Isaiah, he, God takes the mick out of the people of God for, for bowing down to idols. He's like, yeah, you get a bit of wood. You know, you chop half of it up and you make a little fire and you have some sausages, you know, for your, for your barbecue, church on the farm. And then the other half, you know, chip into a little god and you worship it. Good one. A lump of wood. And actually, though, the point he's making is that idols are powerless. And that's actually brilliant news. It's amazing news. Because when, the more that we dwell upon this, the more that we realize to compare the living God with idols is like comparing Goliath with a little ant. Idols, simply knowing that they exist. Knowing, even tonight, I pray, I hope, I hope so much in the last few minutes, the Holy Spirit has just been starting you on a journey of seeing any hidden, subtle idols in your heart. Because knowing that they're there, I remember the last two months when I've been starting to work through this, seeing, oh my goodness, approval, idols. I put so much energy into this. So much of my energy goes into this stupid, pathetic idol. Just knowing it's there, you will find in the coming days, weeks and months, I promise you, you will suddenly more and more, you'll, you're about to do something that you often do and you go, wait a minute. 
why am I going to just flatter that person without thinking about it? So that they then say something nice back to me and that approval idol is kept happy. I'm not going to do it. I'm free. That's like a silly pharaoh saying, excuse me, you need me. You need me. You need that approval of the person. No, you don't. We don't actually. Because God's approval is more immense and more powerful than we could ever know. So the first aspect, the solution for the future, the first part, is simply knowing what those idols are in our lives. That's why Paul in Galatians 5 can say, for freedom, Christ, past tense, has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Okay, so what do we do? Stand firm then. Well, that's it. The great apostle Paul, stand firm. Yeah, stand firm. Just stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom, brothers, that you were set free. Do not submit again to a pharaoh that, quite frankly, is silly and bedraggled and has no power over you. Don't do it. See that potential idol and resist it. Stand firm. Once you've seen the enemy, you're nine-tenths of the way to destroying him. That's good news. It's wonderful news. It means that It's not complicated. It means that as we are honest about the Spirit of God showing them in our hearts, it means that immediately the power of that idol is almost completely undermined. It's glorious. We are free. We are free. We are not in captivity anymore. We have been brought into a place of incredible freedom. It's not to do with how we feel or whether we're having a good day or a bad day. It's to do with the Passover lamb that is Jesus Christ, whose blood has secured us freedom from judgment and release into incredible, everlasting freedom. So step one to being free from these is, number one, just knowing what they are. It's saying, yeah, I see, Holy Spirit, you've been showing me that that particular thing, or maybe more than one, is a potential thing I could give time and energy and make unconsciously the, the God I'm living for. But secondly and finally is this, In addition to this, in addition to being a people who know them and can see our enemies, the second and most glorious thing is this, is that as we look to build our lives more and more and more around, knowing and loving and seeing the full glory of our wonderful Jesus Christ, as we do that, we will see the most perfect example of a person who ever lived, who saw idols, who was tempted to bow down to idols, and yet every single time walked free and demonstrated the perfect example and is now here to enable us to walk free as well. As we spend our lives more and more looking at Jesus Christ, we will see he is our example and he is our enabler in every single one of those four potential idols. Jesus Christ was tempted by the idol of comfort. He was tempted by it. And yet, he looked at it head on and he punched it on the nose and he walked free. We saw Jesus Christ as we read the scripture. We see him in the place of temptation after 40 days of fasting. Along comes Satan. Come on, Jesus. Have a Big Mac. Come on. You know you want it. And what do we see? He's tempted. He's tempted to give in to the comfort of idol, the, the idol of comfort. And yet he says, but actually man shall not live by bread alone. 
Jesus Christ walks free from the temptation to bow down to that idol. Jesus Christ, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows he's about about to walk into the place of greatest suffering that any man will ever endure. About to walk into the place of taking greatest responsibility that any man will ever take. The temptation for him to say, oh, blow this. Forget this. And to make actually comfort his idol would have been overwhelming. And yet, what do we see? We see him say, but not my will, your will be done. You see, Jesus Christ, when he was tempted to make the comfort idol, the thing he lived for, and to to reject suffering, Jesus Christ, again, realized that that was a false God and walked free. Jesus Christ, when he was tempted to shun taking the responsibility for your sin and for my sin, he said, actually, no, it's not comfortable, it's not pleasurable, but I'm going to take responsibility for something I don't have to. I'm going to make it my own. And so we can see an example of the perfect man to enable us when we are tempted at times to go, am I going to take up this responsibility? It's going to mean that my comfort idol is going to be seriously threatened. We can look at Christ and go, but Christ pushed through. He overcame. And now I'm actually in a place of slavery. He's my leader. He's my example. And by the Spirit of God, he's my supernatural enabler. I too will ignore that idol and will walk into a place of taking great responsibility, enduring suffering well, and I will not allow a comfort idol to rule my life. Because Jesus Christ has made a way for us. Jesus Christ dealt with the idol of control head on. As he walked through his life, he would have been tempted again and again to try and take control himself. And yet the most amazing thing about Christ we see, his entire life was at perfect, ongoing Sabbath rest. Not trying to control things himself, but all the time saying, my father, he's in control. He's the one. He says, I've come here not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I can do nothing of my own accord, but only him who sent me. We get this incredible picture of Jesus Christ in a place of total freedom from worry. It's extraordinary. He was so secure, knowing his father was in control. His father was, it was his will. This is God on earth. And yet even he didn't give in to the temptation to try and make control his idol. He said, no, no, no. If I do that, that promises freedom, but actually it brings enslavement. It's amazing. Even in Matthew 6, he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? It's amazing. How could he say that? He could say that because Jesus Christ, our great high priest who is able to sympathize, was tempted as you and I are tempted to make control the main thing in his life and therefore at times to find worry creeping in. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Actually, there's only one type of control I need to give myself to. It's called self-control. Fruit of the Spirit. I can't control what's going to happen to me. But what I can control is how I deal with it and how I react to it. Filled with the Spirit. Able to control himself, but not trying to control everything around him. Pouring energy into that when actually, guess what? His Father was in control. He's our example. He's our enabler. Thirdly, Jesus Christ dealt with the idol of power. Oh my goodness. If ever there was a man 
who deserved to be the main attraction, who deserved to be the one that everyone was like, wow, it was Jesus coming from the glories of heaven, coming to earth, the very creation that he created. If ever there was a time where it would have been completely legitimate for someone to be actually gallowed of me. But what do we see about Jesus? Born in a stable. Grew up in a nothing town. Had a humble job. Just a normal, regular guy. He washed feet. He washed feet, the job of the lowest servant. He deliberately, consciously, hour by hour, looked at the idol of power and said, no, no, I'm not going to give in to you. I'm not going to make that the thing I'm living for. When you look at Jesus Christ, he was living for two things, the glory of his Father and to love and serve you and me. He wasn't about glorifying himself. He looked at the idol of power and he said, no, you promised freedom, but actually you will bring enslavement. Philippians 2, 5 says, Jesus Christ who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, and being found uh, in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And finally, with this we finish, Jesus Christ, dealt with the idol of approval and punched it in the head. Our wonderful Jesus would have been tempted. Jesus at times had thousands saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, you're amazing. Do more amazing miracles, Jesus. The temptation to make people's approval, his God, would have been immense. And yet what do we see? Jesus Christ realized that although that promised freedom, it would have brought captivity. Because he was living for someone else's approval. His Father in heaven. And so we see Jesus, one moment, everyone loving him. And then the next moment, him speaking incredible words of honesty and truth, which meant people wanted to kill him. He was radically, gloriously free. Free from the idol of people's approval. Because he was drenched in the approval of his Father. He was drenched in it. It was like he was, you know, standing in the Niagara Falls of his father's approval. And so he was just overwhelmed with strength and knowledge that actually no people on earth could withdraw that from him. And you see, therefore, our Jesus, when he went to the cross and he took my sin and your sin and the father turned his face away, And for that moment, endured the disapproval and the wrath of the Father. It was to secure for you and for me, for all eternity, the everlasting approval and glorious sunshine and favour of the Father of God upon us. Jesus Christ endured the disapproval. He, My sin was put on him, and so the wrath of God rightly was poured upon him, so that you and I, for all eternity, eternity would know the everlasting approval of our wonderful God. Jesus Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Does that sound quite a good deal? I think it sounds quite a good deal. I think it sounds an amazing deal. That's our Jesus. We don't have a high priest who looks over heaven tonight and goes, oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear. Those church and the farmers. I'm so surprised. They've got one or two potential idols in their life. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize. He was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And tonight, friends, he says, come with me. Come with me. Follow in my way. I I can't, Jesus. You're God. Do you know what? You can. Stand firm. What do you mean? Stand firm. (laughs) You don't have to go and follow that stupid fact. He's a false God. Your freedom was secured for today, for tomorrow, and for all eternity. No scheme of man, no power of hell can ever change that truth. Only we can allow ourselves to bow down to something that actually has no power. Let's pray, shall we? Maybe the band, or just Rob maybe, just on guitar. Can we stand tonight? Let's just, if we can just not talk. I just... One, one singer as well, please. You just want to close your eyes. I really believe that right now is a moment where God wants to take the truth that has been spoken and I believe he wants to just to bring a new level of freedom in reality in many hearts right now. And I believe that God has brought us here tonight for a reason. That we would be a people who don't shy away from God showing us things in our life that can hold us back. But then actually we allow God to lead us into a place of deep understanding about our freedom. So right now, why don't we all just open up our hands and just humble response to our Father the true and living God. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God, Jesus Christ, reigning in glory, who as we've been hearing in these last day, he, he is so passionate about bringing liberty and freedom amidst, amidst trials and tribulations, Amidst challenges and obstacles, I know for a fact so many of us in this room, actually the last few weeks and months have been really hard. God knows that. God, our wonderful shepherd, knows that. God, our wonderful high priest, knows that. And I just believe even now, in the stillness of this place, the Spirit of God is just moving amongst us as a family. Right where we are now, Spirit of God, I just pray you would start to just penetrate deep into hearts all across this room. Father, you, I believe, want us to be absolutely 
with the lightness of yokes. The freedom Christ has set us free. Right now, receive that afresh. If there's been just one or two things God has highlighted in your life that you've just been, it's just been the thing you've been living for, just been hidden, almost like a splinter. You haven't even realized it's been there. And you've just been giving that. That's the main thing your energy's been going into. Right now, Spirit of God, I just want to pray you would wash over us. Peace of God. Spirit of God. In just a moment, I'm going to ask for you to respond if you feel comfortable doing that. If the ministry team just want to maybe just come to the front, that'd be wonderful. Red t-shirt guys. You don't have to respond in moving. You can just, as, as, as we just continue just to love God, you can just connect with him right there. But I, I really feel for many of you tonight, actually some response is important. Some humbling yourself, saying, God, I know that this thing, this thing has been actually an idol in my life. I'm just going to ask you just to come right forward. Right now, just to come right forward. There's going to be many of you, I believe. Absolutely no shame at all. And I believe God is going to come and minister to you. I believe it right now. That's it. Many of you are coming. Please don't miss this opportunity. Absolutely. God's heart that you would receive complete healing. God would bring liberty to the captives. Jesus' words were, I've come. It's the year of the Lord's favor. It's the year of the Lord's favor. I'm here I'm to set the captives free. I'm here to bring liberty to those who have been allowing themselves back into slavery. I'm, I'm here to bring freedom. If you just want to come, keep coming quite forward. I think it's quite a big queue. That's great. Come right forwards. If you just want to come in, that's great. Please do feel free to keep coming. Don't feel like, oh, it's, it's too full. Guys, God is here. God is really, really here. And I believe he's going to do some powerful things tonight. Now, if you, if, if you are a ministry team, we're going to need you. And if you, if you just want to come forward, guys, that would be wonderful. If you just want to pop your hand in the air if you've come forward and haven't got anyone with you at the moment, just to help identify. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus if we're not being prayed for. Okay. So if ministry team just can move amongst people, do just place, place your hand up in the air if you... I've not been prayed for with yet. We're going to worship Jesus in a moment, who was our great Redeemer, our great Passover Lamb. But God wants to bring real freedom here tonight. Let's just keep our eyes on Jesus. If we've got any leaders, men or women, who just feel comfortable praying with people, we've just got several women here and a couple of guys. Just over here, if you wouldn't mind just coming forward. Maybe any cell leaders here. It would be so helpful if you would just move forward and come and help us pray. Thank you, Lord. Just keep loving Jesus together. He's here. A wonderful Lord.